So it's great to have Roy Johnson. Won't you come up front? We uh, we love this family. I've known them for many years, and they pastor in Coffeyville, Kansas. He is an uh, uh, just a great teacher. It is very into the Hebrew. So I imagine you're going to get some Hebrew stuff tonight. So Roy, just make yourself at home. Great to have you. Thank you, sir. It really is an honor to be here. It's a privilege to be able to come. I'm thankful for the Hill family and uh, looking at some of their pictures for the holidays and everything. And they had a lot of family and everyone loves and all the family can come home and, and enjoy and be a part of it. You know, I've got something I want to talk to you tonight about, and we're going to be going to Psalm 23, very, very familiar passage of Scripture, but just before I came up here, God wanted me to tell you something. Some of you are struggling a little bit with trusting God, and and I want to tell you something about that. Trusting God, it really goes deep in the Word of God, learning how to trust in God. And just the word trust itself, I, I, I was I was at a, a, at a function, a Stand with Israel Summit in uh, Cooper City, Florida with uh, Brother Mark Happy Hadabaugh. And we, uh, we went to his house afterwards and I was talking with, um, with Rabbi Sherbel and uh, the Consulate General for Israel for the Southeast Division was there. And we were talking, and then they, they started talking in modern Hebrew to each other, and I caught some of the words that they were saying. And one of the words he said was bitachon in Hebrew. And, and so as he was leaving, I, I turned to Rabbi Sherbel and I said, he was, what, what were you telling him about trust? And he was like, what are you talking about? He, he says, I was talking to him about his security detail. Because the consulate general had guys that, you know, they, had, they were packing, they were protecting him. They were all over the place that whole weekend. And so, so he said it was security in modern Hebrew, and I didn't know that. I know biblical Hebrew, but I didn't know modern Hebrew. But so I thought, wow, that's really cool, security. And then so, but bitikon itself, it means if you, there's a root to it, and the root of the word trust is bitach, and that means certain. So when you trust in God, you can be certain that he will come through for you. So I want you to remember that. That that was extra. That was free. Hallelujah. Psalm 23. It's a psalm that most of the time, most preachers, when they pull this out, it usually has to do with comforting somebody that's lost someone. Most commonly you hear it at a funeral. But I'm not scared of to, to read that here today. <laughs> Nobody's died. We're, we're okay. Thankful that people, you know, the ones that were burnt, and you're, you're right. I'm glad that they're alive and, and God spared them. But the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. And that's where I want to stop. I want to talk to you today, tonight, about how he leads us beside still waters. Water is life. We are nurtured in water before we are born. Our bodies are mostly water, right? We can go without food far longer than we can go without water. 
my son turned to me and he said his honeymoon is during that week. They're going to have a hard time fasting during their honeymoon. Out and about, seeing places, trying different foods. Mm-hmm. I tattled on you. Dehydration is something that people suffer with. <laughs> uh, I, I was listening to a, I was listening to a rabbi one day. I do a lot of this. I visit synagogues. I sit down with rabbis. I talk with rabbis, and we we study together. And I, I know many throughout the country. So, but anyway, one rabbi he was talking about how they went out into the desert in Israel. And they got to a certain point where they were walking and they were doing this tour and they were told beforehand that they needed to bring a canteen of water, your own personal canteen of water. Several of them forgot their own canteen. So that made it so that now all of a sudden they had come to this spot where there was only a few people that had canteens and now all of them had to share this water. They were, they were starting to get dehydrated. If you've ever suffered heat exhaustion, I have. It's not fun. But what had happened was they had to send some IDF soldiers. They ran back to get more water and ran and, and brought some back. But in the meantime, they had to share water. And one of the things as they were going around, this rabbi said when the water came to him, he had to tell himself, I'm going to take just a little drink and pass it on. Because there wasn't going to be enough for everybody. But, it li- but you know what? A lot of people, they, they chugged. You know, and that's just, just what happened. But that's... It's it, dehydration is a very unsettling feeling. It's a trigger often that starts and slides towards bad behavior. My family, they always laugh at me, you know, and somebody says, you know, oh, my shin hurts. And I said, drink more water. You know, that's my answer for everything. Drink more water. Looking at looking for life on other planets, what's the first thing that NASA looks for? They look for water. In the Bible days, the climate was much different than most of us experience here in America. There's only two seasons in Israel. There is six months of rain and six months of no rain. As a matter of fact, if you listen to Israel radio and television, because you know you can subscribe to it and you can listen to hear it, it's in English. Anyway, the news programs after May 1st stop giving the weather reports because every day is sunny and bright. No rain, not a cloud in the sky. In those days of the Bible days, water was not only life to the individual, but it was life for the whole community. Everybody depended on it. Rain is not just something that cancels picnics. Rain replenishes the moisture in the soil and lets crops grow, and giving people and their animals something to eat. Think of all those biblical stories that we read. They say, now that there, now there was a famine in the land. Didn't have water. The first great empires in human history, Babylonia, Egypt, they all were round rivers, weren't they? They controlled the water. That's what made them big and mighty and powerful. When they controlled those things, they controlled the armies. And they controlled the river to, rivers that distributed that water to all those crops. So when the psalmist thanks his faithful shepherd for leading him to water, it is more than just thirst quenching. It's more than just refreshment, which he's grateful for. It's life itself. 
feel like there should be some water right here. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. But water is the stuff of life. It can also be the cause of death. It's possible to drown in this much water. It is. It can happen. You've seen the videos of people driving into the water when they knew they shouldn't have and the current caught them and took them away and now they're in trouble. Monsoons regularly kill people in southern India and places like that. So a little bit of water refreshes, but too much frightens us. Even though we were born in water, studies show that we would rather be on dry land. On the water, we are constantly aware of the fact that we cannot breathe underwater. Now think about this. Like when you go down in the waters of baptism, you know why it's called burial? Because you can't stay there. You can't breathe underwater. That's like death. On the water, we are constantly aware of it. We become uneasy when our feet don't touch the bottom when we're swimming, right? in the lake or the pool, or a little fish bites your hair on your leg. We become anxious at sea when we cannot see the land. We don't know where we are. We cannot judge distances. There was a time where a friend of mine, we, I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota, which is on Lake Superior, and uh, there was a sailboat out off the beach and a friend of mine that I was grew up with, we decided that we were going to swim out to that sailboat. Well, it was a little ways out there. And we got out there, we were basically depending on that person inviting us up onto the sailboat. That's how far it was. Thankfully, they did. And we made a friend that day. So if you want to learn how to make friends... So at some level, our discomfort of water may be more of a realistic fear of drowning. It may be that an ancient fear that water we once lived in is coming back to reclaim us. In olden times, people, you know, back in the Bible days when they, when they, when they first saw the tide coming in, they must have thought that the land was being overtaken by the water again. And, you know, it was a culture back then where people drew on walls. The language was on the walls. The Hebrew language is that old, that it was written on the walls. So lest we think of those things that are only irrational fears or of the ignorant, pre-scientific people in the Bible who did not understand the ways of the tides, newspapers and magazines in recent years have carried stories of beach erosion on, the, on Maine and the Massachusetts coasts. coasts Endangering homes built too close to the ocean. Global warming, you hear about it all the time. You hear about it right here in Louisiana, the coast eroding. I have a niece that lives right here in Baton Rouge. She works on some of those projects. People may still feel that the water is trying to reclaim us. On the opening page of the Bible, the first thing that God does is create light. And he separates the light from the darkness. Then the second thing he does is, and I bet you never noticed this before, but 
it takes him actually a day and a half to do it. In Genesis 1, 6 through 10, you can read it later on. Longer than it takes him to do anything else that week is to mop up all the water that dominates his creation, turning some of it into clouds and the rest of it into oceans so that the dry land could appear. For men and women of the biblical world, dry land represented an opportunity, an opportunity to control what happens. Why? Because water is chaos. You ever heard that before? Genesis 49 and 4 talks about it. Jacob criticizes Reuben for being unstable as water. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5.22, he seeks to persuade Israel of the power and the goodness of God, praises God as one who set the sand as a boundary to the sea, as a limit for all time, though its waves toss, though they roar, they cannot pass it. Even Job talks about it in the very first chapter. When God responds to Job in chapter 38, and he asks, where were you when I laid the foundation, the earth's foundations? Who closed the sea behind the door? When I make breakers, my limit for it, saying, you may come so far and no further. Have here your surging waves must stop. We can jump to the New Testament. Matthew 8 and 23 through 27, you can read that. You can see where God robed himself in flesh, and he shows his creative power by calming the sea. Modern men and women understand that water is not all that chaotic. It always flows from a higher source to a lower source. It freezes at 32 degrees. We seem to have a little bit of control over water nowadays. We can even make it so fine that it'll cut through steel. An experienced sailor, he can find his way on the water now without any problem. He can navigate his way easier on the sea than he can navigate his way through the streets of New York City. But to the biblical mind, water was unpredictable threatening to overflow its bounds and reclaim the land that it once covered. Storms, floods, surging tides, they were scary to them. God was not the only source of water without which we could not live, sending the rain in its season. God was the power that controlled all that water. Now you can see why it's so easily that so many pagans could easily worship the water, things like that, whoever controlled how much rain came out of the sky. Setting limits to the tide, keeping us safe from the flood. God's promise in nine, Genesis 9-11, God's promise to Noah was that never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. See that he set a rainbow in the heavens to prove it. No matter how hard it rained, Sooner or later, the rain would stop and the sun would come out again. When I was, I went to visit my late father-in-law at Texas Bible College when it used to be in Houston, and uh, I was privileged to hear teachers like Reverend Kelsey Griffin and just learn some just great things. But while we were there, I went to a prayer meeting with a lot of the young guys that were going to school there, and in just a matter of 10 minutes, it rained in 10 minutes, and it was up to my knees. That was just, it was power. That's how much it rained. Houston, it rains. You can kind of feel like, whoa, is this ever going to stop? Now, if, as I have suggested here in the 23rd Psalm, 
is in part of a song to pr of praise to, to God for helping us feel safe in an unsafe world. After all, he is our shepherd, right? The line about still waters adds another, dent, a, another dimension to that feeling of security, kind of like what I was talking about when we first started. God is the one who gives us the water so that we can live, but at the same time, make sure that there is not too much water that life becomes difficult. The Jewish people pray a prayer in the early fall, the latter rain season, in Israel, they ask God to send rain in abundance. Lord, send it to us in abundance. But they remember to say, but not too much, that it be a blessing and not a curse. Some have imagined that there's two ways of looking at God's creation story. And if you've ever really read the creation story in the beginning, there's actually two accounts of it, if you look at it. So... Some will talk about God creating something out of nothing or creating from a jumbled mess that was already there. Now, whether you believe the first one or the second one, it really doesn't matter, but I want to talk about the second one because I find it very curious. A lot of Jewish people like the second approach. This is one of these things that I've learned from sitting and talking with them. Here's their thinking. A creative poet does not coin new words. He arranges existing words in a way that no one has ever done before. Scientists and historians, they don't make things up. They identify patterns that were previously noted. They see God creating a world not by making earth and water appear in what had been empty space, but by sorting out the earth and the sea, setting bounds for the water, letting the dry land appear in many of the scriptures that we read here tonight. God is the power that imposes order on chaos. Trust in God, right? So that the world is livable. God's power keeps the force of gravity constant so that objects don't float away when we reach out for them. I, didn't, I, I grabbed that quick, but it wasn't going to float away. Another thing about trust is why does it seem like God always waits to the last minute? The Bible talks about him doing it with an outstretched arm. Things are about to fall and he catches it. Well, he has a flair for the dramatic for one. But really, it's mostly it's about how much are you going to trust him? How long can you hold out? It's not some kind of torture thing. It's a character-building thing. It really is. God's power keeps all the laws of what we call physics and chemistry constant so that we can count on foods and plants and oils and everything to do what they are supposed to do. Newton's second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy. And it tells us that if a system is left to itself, in time, it will move from order to chaos. So, in other words, if you leave a truck out in the field, sooner or later, it's just going to rot and become a rusty heap. But you cannot take a rusty heap and turn it back into a truck. It just doesn't work that way. 
it takes deliberate intervention to actually take new sheets of metal and turn it into a car. So one of God's gifts to us then is that the world, if it's left unattended and not tended for, to run da- it'll run down over time. But you notice God takes care of it. He's got it constantly regenerating. Though the earth has been around for a while, it will not revert to chaos because God keeps it that way. He keeps it orderly. Even though quakes and floods and volcanoes, they still have to obey the laws of God. A physicist argued that there was no God because of Newton's chaos theory. But a biologist stopped him and he said, I can bring a case for God's existence. Maybe physics reverts to chaos. You can take a jar of marbles and you can carefully sort them by size and color. And they can become hopelessly jumbled when you shake it. But consider the growth of a human child in the womb. It starts with a cluster of undifferentiated cells. And over a course of just a few months, and by a process that should never cease to amaze us, things start happening. Some of those cells become eyes. Some of those cells become lungs. Some become fingers. Randomness gives away to order. Isn't that God at work? Yeah, it is. So if we extend the contrast between still water and surging water from the natural to the emotional realm, remember, there's, a, there's physical and spiritual. You can't get away. You gotta, there's got to be balance in your life. You've got to do the natural. You can't, get, you can't get out of this high, at least not now. But you can try to get as much spiritual as you can, but you still got to have some balance. I'll tell you one thing. Here, here, uh, this is extra. For years, I always heard it taught about how when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and there was a rope tied around his ankle so that in case he did something wrong and fell dead, they could pull him out. They'd hear the bells jingle. And, but, you, but what I realized later on in life was when he got into the presence of God, guess what? He wanted to stay. But he had obligations in the world to take care of. He had family. He had duties, things that he had. So he couldn't stay there. So at a certain point, sorry, bud. I know you want to stay with God, but we've got things to do. Many of us, we can see God as the power that lets us control all of our surging emotions that well up inside of us. Many of us have had the experience of letting our emotions get the best of us, letting them get out of control. We know what a frightening, unsettling experience it may be to have. It can be kind of like a flood just surging, you know, in the midst of an argument. You may lose your temper and say something that you didn't mean to say. You lash out and now you, you can't take it back. Some people even go to the point where they use their fists. But like the river that overflows its banks and destroys the homes it had given life to, 
these emotional instincts that we have, they can surge out of control and they can destroy our own lives. But God becomes the power that enables us to control those out-of-control feelings. It is God who closes the emotional sea behind doors, saying, here the surging waves must stop. When the psalmist is thanking God, it's not just for quenching his thirst. He is thanking him for keeping the waters still, keeping them manageable, keeping them less threatening. He is thanking God for the blessing of self-control. Even some religious people have trouble with this and become ungrateful. That's why we set limits for ourselves. It tells us that sometimes too much of a good thing, food, the desire to succeed, it can become no longer a good thing. There are limits even on how much time we spend with our family. You'll notice familiarity. You've heard this saying, it breeds contempt, right? You stay around some people too long. I was just finished a book reading Everyone's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. It's a pretty good book to read. Really, it's about community and how to interact with people. We don't repress these things as bad because they can be done in excess. Like I said, we talk about balance in our lives. God who set the limits to the oceans promises Noah has set limits to the surging drives that are within us. He says, you shall go no further. Here you can go. Call on me. Let me help you. That's what God is saying. Let me finish with this. I'm closing here. This lesson that the psalmist is giving us, he speaks of being led by still waters. This is the divine gift which it points. God can help you control your emotions. In Hebrew, the word for still waters is me menuhot. And it basically means waters of rest and relaxation. We can relax. We can be confident in our abilities to control those restless impulses that we have within us because God is on our side. The Lord is my shepherd. Bringing order where there would be otherwise be chaos. Giving us rest. Now, I've got a picture here that I asked them to post up here on here. Post for Facebook. <laughs> anyway, here is the truth broken down. We know that salvation comes through the death, burial, and resurrection. And you've heard Jesus, you've read it where it says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This in Hebrew, and Hebrew is always from right to left, is the word for truth. It's emet. It has the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it has the middle, exact middle letter, and it has the last letter. So it has the first, the middle, and the last. The first letter is Aleph, 
The middle is a mem, and the last is a tav. Now, you may not have to remember all this, but I'm going to tell you some things here. So when he said, when, God, when, when Jesus said that he, was, that he was the truth, he was speaking to a group of people that knew what he was talking about. He knew just how to bug the Pharisees, and he knew just what other people knew what he was talking about. Anyway, so the truth, or emmet, you see, is the beginning and the end. If you look at Isaiah 44 and 6, what does he say, God say there? He says, I'm the first and the last. So you've got the first letter and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Later on in Revelation, you read how Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega. That's the Greek letters. Just put those two letters together and they don't mean anything in the, in the Greek. But in the Hebrew, oh man, this is fantastic. You've got the middle and the last. Or the, you, if you take the first two letters... The Aleph and the Mem, they're a word themselves. It's the word M, and it's the word in Hebrew for mother. And that's where life begins. Life begins with your mother. That's where you started. It also alludes to the womb. And so, then you can take that middle letter, the Mem, and with the Tav on the end, that's a word also. And that's Met, and that's the word for death. That's the end of life. So here, wrapped up in all of this truth, is the beginning of life and the end of life. But what about that middle letter? That middle letter, remember I was talking earlier and I said, this language is so old that it was written on cave walls. It was written on stone and parchment papers. It was written in pictorial form. And that middle letter is actually in wavy water. And it has to do with water. This right over here, this what we call a baptismal, this is actually, it's a mikvah. starts with the same letter, the mem. It has to do with water. Hmm. Yeah, I bet you if you opened it up, I bet you there's some still water. God wants to, if, if you have not been baptized in Jesus' name, let me tell you, your pastor will help you and lead you over to those still waters. And, let you, and help you out. Hallelujah. So there's still water here. Water's life. Water's so much life. And it's even alluded to, because when you come out of that water, you can have rivers of living water flow out of your belly. Hallelujah. I want to make sure that I didn't miss anything on that was good. I, 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 I'll have to admit, I like this stuff. I really do. Uh, you know, I'll tell you something. The beginning and the background of where all of the Hebrew stuff started was I had a man. He came into my church uh, when I was pastoring in Minnesota. And he was just this scraggly looking fellow. He reminded me of John the Baptist. I mean, he had beard down to here and hair was all over the place uncombed and he wore the same ugly sweater to every service um, and it wasn't even a man sweater but anyway it was a, he, it was and he gave me a Hebrew Bible and it had the English and it had the Hebrew in it and I started looking at some things and one of the first things that I looked at when I opened it up and I read it I realized something that was really amazing 
and it, it, it created in, in me more of a hunger to want to know more. And that's it's why it's good to read the Bible and kind of dig into it. And for, you know, your pastor preaches great messages, and he teaches you on a constant basis, but you have to do it for yourself also. Um, so, but anyway, I read, I was reading, just reading, I started out, and I said, well, I'll just start in the beginning of this book, Bible, the Hebrew Bible. And I read where God created Adam, and he created a garden, and then he placed Adam into the garden. And I was like, well, wait a minute. He created Adam, he created a garden, then he cre- put Adam into the garden. So Adam knew what it was like outside of the garden. So when Eve took partook of the fruit, and he partook of the fruit, he knew full well what he was getting into. He knew what was outside of the garden. That's why later on when we read in the New Testament where it says what that Adam was not deceived. That's a picture of the bride of Christ, if I ever saw it, and, and, the, and, and, and the Savior, you know, coming in and, and giving himself completely for his bride. Right from there, from the very beginning. And so that, like I said, that just created more of a hunger. Hallelujah. So anyway, there's water. What doth hinder thee to be baptized? How about that, huh? Wonderful. Would you stand with me right now? I love language studies. I love an in-depth <coughs> Bible study, and um, I, I, I'm with I'm with Roy. If if you, I appreciate the confidence you guys put in me. Like, I dig, man. I love the Word, but if if I can provoke you to love the Word and to dig in the Word yourself. If what Roy did can provoke you to dig into the Word, the Word is life. The Word brings so much life. If you missed Sunday, I pointed out the fact I hate to, I'm not re-preaching a sermon, but the thought is interesting. Nazareth was the backwash of part of the Roman Empire. Nathaniel was a Galilean, and he looked at Andrew and said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In other words, Galilee was looked at as a bad place, but Nazareth was the worst of the bad. Yet Mary and Joseph came out of Ma- out of Nazareth. What set them apart? Well, if you look at the Magnificat, if you look at Joseph's life, their word relationship, their relationship with the word of God set them on a higher level than their surroundings. We live in a mixed up world, an evil world, a world that's not filled with truth, a world of turbulent waters. But if you can get in the word, you will find a peace, you'll find a depth, you'll find a stability, you'll find a life you will not have outside of the word. And and life is chaotic, our family situations get chaotic, finances get chaotic, Life gets stressful. You have things that happen in the Drummond family on Christmas Day. You have stuff that happens. Am I right, Milton? Stuff happens, doesn't it, on a regular basis. But if you can have that word that is that ballast and that stability in your life and you run to it, you can rise above the circumstances. Amen.